Okay, well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Tiffany Jenkins. I'm going to be chairing this session on Do You Trust the Media? Um, we will be asking you that question first, but before that, we're going to listen to a number of people from various aspects of the media. Um, I'll introduce them. They'll speak for about five to six minutes. Uh, we'll have a conversation up here and then open it out to you for your points and questions. And for those of you from the panel who haven't been on a Battle of Ideas panel before, you will find that you do not get very many questions. And that is fine. So this session's on Do You Trust the Media? Um, on my immediate left, we're going to hear first from Kerry Thomas, who is the ex-editor of BBC Radio 4's Today, <coughs> celebrating its 60th year, yesterday. as we've heard yeah. yesterday. Um, also BBC One's Panorama, and he is currently the Director of Public Affairs at Oxford University. Speaking second with the beard... Dr. Graham Archer, writer and professional statistician, and he's the winner of the 2011 Orwell Prize for blogging. We'll then hear from Faye Schlesinger, who is the head of news at the <coughs> Times, on my far left. Vance Crow, on my immediate right, is director of the Millennial Engagement Programme at the Monsanto Company, and Monsanto are the generous sponsors of this session. We will then hear from Alan Miller, poet, chairman... <laughs> <laughs> of the Nighttime Industries, if you're lucky you might be able to hear of him. He's the chairman of the Nighttime Industries Association and he's a leading campaigner of Save Nightlife. So, Kerry, would you like to begin? I will, okay, thank you. Um, I just start very briefly, I think there's a definitional question, which we're not going to deal with today, but which is interesting nonetheless. If you went back 30 years, um, you'd be looking at 10 daily newspapers, half a dozen Sundays, Four TV stations that cover the country, two radio stations perhaps. Uh, we knew what the media was. I think that hovers over all. This is what is the media these days? And actually to say in blanket terms, I trust the media, I think would, would be a bit daft. Uh, having said that, let's give it a go. Um, and I'll just start very briefly with an episode that takes me back a couple of years to when I was working on Panorama at BBC. And we had started looking into... Uh, a police operation called Operation Midland, which some of you will know, was investigating high-profile allegations that a bunch of politicians and celebrities had kidnapped, abused, tortured and murdered boys. And <clears throat> through that, we came into contact with a new media operation called Exero, which was a sort of well-funded online startup that... Um, uh, was set up deliberately in, as, a, as a criticism, in effect, of the, the operation of the, of, of the, the mainstream media. And, and the, the reason I mention all this is because um, through that episode, uh, things became apparent to me that perhaps should have, I should have realised before. So we were on different sides of this story than X-Row were. They were... They, They've effectively put the story in the public domain, and we were, we were sceptical about it. Um, but I've been in that position quite a lot through my professional life, and so the, really the defining difference that I saw in my dealings with this new media entity was that they were just, from my perspective, just foul. They were, they were I thought, unprincipled. I thought they were prepared to exploit people in public terribly. Um, I found them to be vicious. They, they attacked journalists in public. Uh, they trolled people. I was accused uh, online of, being, of having made 
paedophile films in Belgium in the 1980s. I have to point out to my children I never worked in Belgium. And they, um, rather stupidly, it took me a little while to realise what I think was fundamentally going on, which was that Exero came from a, a belief that um, the British establishment and all that went with it was fundamentally corrupt and that by any means necessary, uh, it, it was important to, to bring it down. And that included, and the bit I hadn't realised, was that absolutely included the mainstream media. So for the, even working for the BBC, and I know that occupies a particular place, we, we were part, in the eyes of XRO and a number of other news organisations, of the establishment. Uh, and that, that added a, uh, a level of antagonism to the relationship between us that had never been there in my dealings with the press before. Having said that, uh, I think I also had to acknowledge that some of the criticism had merit. So the British media had not been self-analytical enough, that it had not challenged itself enough. The Guardian certainly found that when it started to investigate phone hacking, that it, it found it was a very solitary pursuit for quite a long time. Um, and the media was too narrow. So whilst my general view of the BBC is that in my 25 years there, it got better in most important ways, uh, more accountable, more transparent, more honest. Um, there were certain times when I could look at it and say, its view of what is reasonable what opinions are reasonable, and that matters a lot in the BBC because it's around that central idea of what's reasonable that the BBC defines impartiality. Um, so what's, when you're trying to, ref if the BBC defines impartiality as reflecting as many shades of opinion as it can, and the more narrowly that's defined, the more problematic it may be over time. So I think both in terms of uh, its general narrowness and in its lack of criticism of itself, the media was, uh, was problematic. So there was something in what XRO said. But I think the, the effect of it was that we suddenly had new entrants who saw trust as a zero-sum game, that in order to build trust for themselves, they believed they fundamentally had to take down trust in existing people in the market. And that, that hadn't happened before. You can argue that it can be short-sighted, that in the end, a generalised trust will, will float all of our boats, but it was, certainly, um, it was certainly the view that they brought to bear on it. Um, just briefly at the end, I, think I, I came to think as a result of that, that trust is an increasingly poor guide to good journalism. That you can look back over history and see times when the public over-invested trust in the media in this country. Again, stay with BBC. Before the Second World War, uh, when Churchill is kept off the BBC because the Tory government doesn't want anti-appeasement views on air, um, the BBC's trust is stratospheric at that point, but it's not behaving in a particularly trustworthy way. Um, through Suez and later, you can see where trust and trustworthiness are not the same thing. And so the, um, when trust starts to collapse, a general collapse in the early part of the 21st century. And again, it's not related at that point to, to the problems that were exposed through phone hacking and Leveson. They came later. Um, and 
But again, there is another moment when you can see the correlation between trust and trustworthiness is not a reliable one. And so, for me, what the media has to do is to focus on trustworthiness, I think in a society that's more polarised, to aspire to a general increase in trust that would take, for example, the American media back to the 72% trust level that they enjoy post-Watergate is, 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 not, is not tenable as a proposition. What the media has to do, I think, is to focus on trustworthiness, integrity, transparency, diversity, accountability, all, those, all that good stuff. And in the end, I think, forget about trust, because it, it will either come or it won't. But unless we can show that it's driven by trustworthiness, then it risks potentially furthering divisions rather than healing them. Thank you. you can Graham. Thanks. Well, um, you know, it's true, I am a jobbing hack. Uh, read me now at unheard.com. That's unheard.com. Um, but actually, what I wanted to speak about here isn't um, so much from the basis of uh, media and why should we trust it. But ideas about how it's to do with my real job, which is my work as a statistician. Um, and I think some ideas that I'm used to about how evidence can be used to evaluate trust in a theory um, might translate over into our general view of how the media presents evidence to us and how we should expect that to modulate our belief in those theories. So, thought experiment. I have a theory about a coin in my pocket, um, that it is a fair coin. It has equal chance of landing heads or tails. I've tossed it five times, and on four of those five tosses it came up heads. Do you think my coin is fair? Yes? Yes, sir. What if I now tell you that it's not a British pound coin in my pocket, but some ancient Roman thing made before quality control that I dug up in the garden with a huge-nosed emperor stuck on one side with putty? Um, four heads and five tosses. Do you think that coin is fair? No. Um, the, yet the evidence about the coin's fairness is the same in both cases. Four heads in five tosses. Clearly something other than evidence is affecting our belief in a theory. And if that half of the room had known that I was talking about the ancient coin, and this half of the room just assumed I was talking about a British coin, um, they'd have come to different conclusions about the theory. The coin is fair. That is a thought experiment to try to explain why I really dislike. I have antibodies to, when you hear on news programmes, um, interviews to start by saying, the evidence says... Duh, 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 duh. What they're trying to do there, I believe, is to close down the debate and say, evidence has now happened, therefore the theory is proven, therefore you must agree with me, or you are somehow irrational. But evidence alone can never, almost never, tell us what to believe about most useful scientific or political theories. All swans are white is easily disproved by sight of one black swan. It's a deducibly false theory. But what does the appearance of 10 white swans do to the theory? 100 white swans, 1 million white swans. All epistemic attempts to build a logic of induction um, that use the evidence alone um, to tell us what to believe about the theory have failed. Uh, um, instead, um, most of, I think most... Don't put words in people's mouth. I certainly believe uh, the correct role of evidence is to modulate your personal belief in a theory from a priori to a posteriori, according to the rules of probability. So I hear a big so what. Suppose you see a news report which says scientists at the University of Press Release published findings today of a new test to diagnose Alzheimer's disease more quickly. Using levels of enzyme in human plasma, they claim their test correctly classified 95% of Alzheimer's patients. 95%. 
What's more, it incorrectly classified only 10% of control subjects who did not have Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, you agree, that's a fairly typical news story. I do read, I, I comment a lot, Faye, in the Times on news stories like this. I have one of those. A new test has got great operating characteristics. So you take the test for Alzheimer's disease and it comes up positive. What's the probability that you have Alzheimer's disease? Most people want to say it's 95%. You remember I, I said the, the test was 95% accurate. Um, the prob- the, they allow a statement about the evidence, the probability of a positive result in the presence of the disease is 95%, to become a statement of belief in the theory, I have the disease because I tested positive. In fact, um, using background prevalence rates on the Alzheimer's Disease Society's website and three lines of Bayes' theory of reasoning, if you test positive with this test, um, the probability that you have Alzheimer's disease is 11%. Most people are surprised by that. And another consequence of this evidence as modulator, not evidence as proof, way of thinking is that the same evidence, however strong, is not guaranteed to make two individuals believe the same thing, even if you're both rational. If people start from different places with respect to their view of a theory, they will move closer together after the evidence, but could still be a long way apart. And this is demonstrable mathematically. This is not my opinion. That's one reason why all those stories about baked beans give you cancer are treated with derision. If you start from the position there is an endless sequence of these assertions which unravel over time, then yet another single instance of a story about them doesn't modulate your prior belief very much. It's also my theory for why Liberals and Tories don't fall into agreement when presented with the evidence. Neither is irrational, but they're starting from different belief states about the theory. So the same evidence will move them if they're rational, but it needn't necessarily move them into, into agreement. So a change I'd like to see in our news culture, which I think, hopefully that wasn't too abstruse, on the basis of this, it's Bayesian reasoning, by the way, is to do more to uncover the prior beliefs of lobbyists who always want more money for good reasons in their life to further their group's objectives. Of course, such people, I'm not making a moral judgment, of course they find any data or evidence that they collect, such as surveys about mental health in in the workplace, there's one like that this week, as compelling evidence for their organisation's theory. Basically, government should implement our policy. They already had huge prior belief in that theory before they collected the evidence. Otherwise, they wouldn't be those lobbyists. A little more data merely makes them a little more confident in their theory. It's not the evidence that's telling them their theory is true. They already believe that. There's no reason on earth why the rest of us should have the same positive a priori belief about their policy, even on the basis of their survey evidence. So I would like to see them challenged more. What are their alternative theories for this policy, how much do they cost? What other theories, policy theories, are as strongly supported by that evidence as the one that you're lobbying for? Um, I think little changes along those lines would not only make health stories more readable and um, dampen down the hysteria about new diagnostic tests for various diseases, but I think it's a framework that can be applied to any um, situation where theories, there are competing theories to explain evidence, um, just to put evidence in its correct place. Evidence alone will not tell you what to think. And I think that Bayesian approach would make the news more trustworthy. Thank you. Bay. Um, I just wanted to ask you to cast your mind back to June this year when um, we probably all woke up to the horrific news about um, Grenfell Tower fire. 
I want to use Grenfell to kind of illustrate some quite key points about trust in the media, um, specifically, mainly around accuracy and the idea of reporting in a world of time constraints, and secondly, about the blurring of the line between news and content, news and comments, sorry. Um, so Grenfell fire happened... Um, from a news perspective, we're immediately sending reporters out to the scene. We've also got a big team in the office who are trying to work out as quickly as they can a sense of what might have caused this. Now, there is, of course, an official investigation, there are several official investigations, but they're not going to report back for months and months, possibly even years. And I think most of you in this room would kind of agree with the idea that you want answers more quickly than that, especially if there's something that can be done or changed in the interim to make the tower safer. And the demand, even, even disregarding the safety element, people just want answers more quickly than that. So um, we reported, the Times reported the day after, two days after the fire, that um, the, the cladding that had been used on this, um, on this tower in the US, which is where the, the, the sales are generated, um, was banned on any tower above 12 metres. Now, Grenfell Tower is 67 metres tall. Um, we also revealed that they could have used, if they'd chosen to, a slightly more fire-resistant cladding. So we, we, we worked out, it's approximate, but about £5,000 for the entire tower. Now, we didn't know then when we reported it, and neither do we know now, and we probably won't know for months and months, whether that is the main reason that the fire spread so quickly, or even a reason that the fire spread so quickly. I guess I would defend, so you could argue, why put it in the public domain? Does that dissolve trust in the media? Does it affect trust in the media? If I um, anticipate that, that criticism, I would say that we, we were right to put it in the public domain. We didn't say at that time we think this is the main reason. We just put it out there as, as factually accurate, which it, which it was. Um, and I think it helps to inform the debate around it. And hopefully it will be something that will be taken into account when the official investigations happen. Um, another kind of key area around accuracy and facts about reporting Grenfell was the death toll. Um, as you know, it, it's now believed to be 80 or just short of 80, a horrific number of the highest single loss of life since the Hillsborough disaster. At the time, um, there were a lot of suggestions that the death toll was much higher than was being reported in the, in the mainstream media. And the suggestion that it was perhaps a cover-up or the, the government wanted to pretend it was lower at that stage. Um, we had been um, told at some point a couple of days after that it was expected to rise above 100, and a lot of media reported that, um, that fact or that, that supposition. Um, we'd also been warned that, hang on, it's far too early to say that, there a lot of people who will thankfully escape that tower and maybe went to stay with friends but hadn't reported to a police yet, or that maybe just weren't in their home at the time that the fire took off. Um, we decided not to report that 100 figure, and actually... There was a really interesting conversation um, with the editor about, look, it could go this high. We just don't know at this stage. Let's not go for the high number, even though it's going to sell more papers, frankly, because people, you know, it's a worse tragedy, but we didn't do that. We pulled back from it. Um, now, the death toll is still extraordinarily high and far too high, but it just gives you a sense that we do trust kind of the instincts of our reporters, and we have those conversations um, regularly about how far to go with the, the information we've got. Um, another kind of area of reporting um, around the Grenfell fire was reported everywhere across Britain and around the whole world was this, um, this reports from, from witnesses that a baby had been thrown from a window between the fourth floor and the eleventh floor, depending on um, who you listen to, and had been amazingly caught um, on the ground. Now, um, BBC Newsnight ran a, an investigation this month um, that effectively found no evidence for that story whatsoever. They went back to all the, the witnesses who declined to kind of repeat that. doesn't mean it's untrue, but they just didn't want to say it again. 
And then they talked to um, physics experts who said that a baby that would be thrown from that level would sustain really quite serious injuries, both the baby and the person who was catching the baby. The ambulance service said they'd have no evidence of those of any victim with those types of injuries. And the Met Police also haven't had any reports. Now, Newsnight was quite careful to say we can't say categorically it's untrue, but based on the evidence, it looks like it probably was untrue. And they had some kind of psychologists talking about maybe how that theory had come about. Not that anybody was being malicious. I don't think this was a, a, an example of witnesses making it up. I think it was just the confusion and the chaos. Now, Newsnight got quite a lot of criticism for reporting that, kind of people saying, why are you putting um, your efforts into debunking something that clearly wasn't malicious at the time? Aren't you somehow undermining the heroics or the actions of, of witnesses <coughs> and people who tried to help on the day? I think that you can't really criticise the media for getting things wrong and then <coughs> criticise them for correcting something that's, that is wrong. If, if we as, as outlets discover, and this is true of websites and MPs tweeting of, of, of newspapers, that something is wrong, we have a duty to report it right again as far as we can. But again, it gives you a sense of the kind of the, the movable truth of these stories. What might appear to be true one day might not appear to be true later. And as media outlets, we're reporting it now because of the demand from you guys and also because we want to put it into the public domain. So that means that we do have to sometimes correct the narrative. If I turn into the idea of um, something that's levelled a lot of the media, the blurring of the line between news, the facts, and comment, and that's the kind of editorialised view or what the paper believes or what the paper wants to be true. I'm just going to use again um, Grenfell as an example of this. Um, about three weeks after Grenfell, um, John McDonnell, the Shadow <coughs> Chancellor, described what happened there as social murder. He used this, this phrase and got a lot of um, coverage. Now, just to give you some, in, um, some insight into the different ways this was reported, the BBC and The Guardian, in their reports, both said... John McDonnell today said that the Grenfell Tower was an example of social murder. That's quite straight, I think you probably agree. Um, Sky said um, John McDonnell yesterday or today refused to back down on his claim that this was social murder. Now, they're accurate with that. He was challenged, he refused to back down. So there's no element of untruth there, but it's placing the onus in a slightly different place, maybe that John McDonnell should have backed down. The Daily Mail um, on the Mail Online intro to this story said John McDonnell said this using a Marxist phrase to describe the exploitation of the proletariat. Now again, there is no untruth to that. He, he's an educated man, there's no way he used that expression, social murder, without knowing its historical roots. So I don't actually think that's, that's in any way an untruthful intro, but it does place the emphasis in a different place. It's bringing to the fore the Marxist background and tying that with John McDonnell. The Times reported this within another story about labour and student debt. Now, our reasoning for this was that two weeks earlier he'd said something very similar at Glastonbury, so I think we took the view of, he's already said this, is it news again? I actually happen to think that, retrospectively, that was a wrong call. But, um, that, I think, gives us an insight into something that happens a lot within the media that people overlook. When they're having this kind of discussion about whether we're reporting these objectively or subjectively, they're thinking about the twist or the angle or explicit editorialisation, as with, we saw with the Enemies of the People headline in the Daily Mail, which was a very editorialised front page. What is far more powerful, I think, is actually what the media chooses to cover and not cover. What, what magnification we give to stories or we don't give, whether we put a story on the front page, you know, writ large, or whether we put a story on page 31 or 20 words, or whether we ignore it altogether. And I think um, this, on the one hand, can be incredibly damaging, on the other hand, it helps to understand why we do that. We're thinking very, very carefully about our readers and what we intuitively think they're interested in, which is editing. I mean, there's no, you know, we don't do a little survey on every story and say we're interested and then we put that on the front page. We wouldn't have time to. It's an editing process. 
Um, but I think the distrust um, in the media springs from the illusion that what we're doing is entirely objective. We have, there is an onslaught of data. Nobody just gets their, their news from newspapers these days. There was a time when they really probably did get most of their news from, from newspapers. They only knew what was happening in France because they read it in the newspaper. That is no longer the truth. What we're doing now is saying, in this onslaught of data, we're going to curate for you, and I think curation is a really important word. What we think is important today, given what's happening in the world, what's happening in universities, what's happening in, in Britain, we're curating that and we're offering it to you. But it is not the be-all and end-all. And we think that if, if you're really interested in a certain idea, you're probably going to go to a specialist publication or a specialist website, or you're going to start a career in that area. But I think there's a really strong value in curation at a busy time, as well as the downsides of it. Thank you. Just uh, to start off, if I could take a couple of quick poll questions. How many of you in this room have heard of Monsanto as a company? All right. Now, how many of you have heard some pretty dark things about Monsanto as a company? Okay, so I think that maybe some of you will appreciate this story. And the story is three and a half years ago when I first drove onto the campus of Monsanto, and I was going to be interviewing for a job that I didn't want. But the reason that I accepted the interview is because who doesn't want to see inside of North Korea, right? And so I, uh, I, I had taken this interview, and when I drove onto campus, I was horribly crushed with disappointment before I even got in to do the interview, just absolutely devastated. And I think the way that you can understand my devastation was to get a little bit of background. I actually had uh, started my career um, as somebody that was destined to do good in the world. I, I tried everything I could. I joined the US Peace Corps and volunteered in Africa. I ended up interning for PBS and, and working for a show there. I, I worked in uh, public radio in Mendocino, California. And for those of you that don't know where Mendocino is, uh, you can picture Berkeley, California, right? The people that believe that Berkeley is too conservative, they move up to Mendocino. And so I actually had been working in a small house that had been converted into a radio station, and these were the very places where the ideas about how dark um, and terrible of a place Monsanto was came out of the ground. And I was there because I was there to try and spread messages that would allow the world to do the most good. So you can imagine that when I pulled onto the campus and I was expecting that everything the media had told me about what Monsanto would be, that I would find an 80-story building with dark storm clouds around it and that everyone on campus would be wearing black suits and Matrix-style sunglasses. And when I walk up to the front door and the person that greeted me's name is Holly and she has a ponytail, the, suddenly I realized like something is off here. Something that I had known to be true from everything that I had read and seen wasn't matching up. And to make a very long story short, we go through the entire interview. And if you've ever interviewed for a job you don't want, it's a really fun experience because you don't actually have to answer any questions that they have. You can sit there and poke people, right? And so that's what I was doing for hours. I just sat there and poked on them about everything that I had heard. And they were, you know, casual about answering it and very intense about, you know, we feel very misunderstood. And we get all the way to the end of the interview and I still didn't want the job. But I, I get to the end, and Holly, who had been interviewing me among a bunch of other people, said, now do you have any questions for me? And so I paused, and I kind of got this big smirk on my face, and I said, yeah, I got a question for you. How are you going to train this director of millennial engagement, this person that's going to go out and talk to the public? And she paused, and she actually said something next that completely changed my life. She said, 
you know, whoever we hire for this job, we'll train them differently. But since you were so interested and curious and asking all these questions, what I would do is I would line up a list of 50 people from throughout the company, geneticists, breeders, biologists, chemists, attorneys, and I'll have you go talk with them. You can talk with them for an hour, an hour and a half. And when you're done, you can come and sit down and talk with me and we'll figure out what you do and don't know. And I'll write up another list of 50 people for you to go interview. And I realized in that moment that she was actually offering me the opportunity of a lifetime because I was going to get to run around inside this company. And if they were as evil as everybody said that they were, then I was going to go write the greatest tell-all book of all time. But if they weren't, well, then you've just discovered maybe one of the largest chasms in culture, maybe in the history of time, because we're growing food more bountifully than any other time in human history. And yet the people have been made to feel deeply afraid of their food and of the companies that are producing it and of the farmers that are putting it out into the world. And so I, I took the job and, and I, I have to say that it's been the most amazing experience in my life because I've gotten to see the juxtaposition between what the media talks about and who the company is. And, but I came into a major problem because now that I wanted this job, I had to come home and explain to my wife who we were joking about in the morning <laughs> that I didn't want this job. And I was like, what in the hell am I going to do now? And so I get online and I pop open my computer and I go to YouTube and I start typing in Monsanto and I actually came across a YouTuber uh, named Miles Powers. Actually, he's right there. And, uh, and because this is the first time to London and so I got to meet him. And, I, and the reason I wanted to meet him is because for the very first time in my life, I actually watched what the people that were saying Monsanto were so evil about actually had to say. Because in his um, YouTube channel, what he would do is show up at marches. And instead of making commentary, he would go and literally interview the people about what do you know about this subject? And it was like taking a periscope into a world. And I could see that some of these arguments that they had, maybe they were very heartfelt and they believed very deeply, but they weren't deep arguments. They weren't sophisticated. And so I was able to use that. And so when we bring up the question of do you trust the media, I think it's a really, really difficult question. And I think it's among many different domains on whether or not you trust it, because you have to trust someone, right? You have to trust people on YouTube that you don't know, or you have to watch things in the Times. But I think that the biggest thing that I've learned is that the media maybe doesn't tell us, and maybe you've heard this before, the media doesn't tell us what to think. It tells us what to think about. And I think that that has a major impact on which issues we think are the most important, which also then direct us towards narratives about who we believe are the villains and the heroes in different stories that come out in the media. Okay. Alan. Thank you. Make sure you use the mic. I think um, now the media ranks below politicians and bankers in terms of how the public see it as being trustworthy or not, particularly amongst young people. Um, and it may not be the case, as Ben Shapiro, the American conservative, tells us, that facts don't care about your feelings. But increasingly, we hear today comments such as, I feel this could be true, or this feels true for me, uh, as well as being told the facts, the evidence, says and means this. Now, in a world that's become dominated by the idea, which is a universal idea, ironically, that there is no such thing as objective reality or truth, only many truths, it's sort of perhaps understandable that with an ever-increasing ability to post and blog and use social media and publicise, many people may feel uh, uncomfortable with the idea of uh, you know, the ho like wholesale trust of the media. 
And I actually come from a tradition, I guess, that is uh, being sceptical about what we are told. Um, but that was born from the notion that citizens and the public are actually active in a history uh, and can use reason and uh, their own capabilities, not only to understand the world, but to engage with it and, and potentially change it. But you see, scepticism is active uh, and engaged, and it's very different to cynicism and a lack of trust. Um, mm -hmm. And I think with the events in the run-up to the US elections and subsequently, the adage that any challenge can be put down as fake news by mainstream media has been elevated to mainstream status. <coughs> sort of weirdly enough, the conspiratorial tone and slants of this, you know, to some extent the discussion about evil, uh, the evil cabal plotting uh, an Orwellian tropes, keeps keeping us all hypnotised by their mind control. It's sort of been popularised by many who sort of would have considered themselves to be sort of more left-leaning uh, 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 in the past. So many of my acquaintances continually jump to declare that any terror attack is just another false flag game and may declare proudly how they search for the most obscure sources because they don't want to trust the mainstream media. Uh, and in fact, you know, obviously JFK's uh, assassination anniversary is revisiting uh, a lot of these ideas uh, of uh, conspiracy now. But, you know, having organised a lot of debates internationally in the last couple of decades, people always say, who's sponsoring you? Right? As though somehow this notion that if you have someone giving you any kind of sponsorship or backing, you can have an editorial separation of decision making. And increasingly that's been a perception of big pharma or big oil or big business generally, uh, and that you can't have independence of it. And I think that is quite a crass idea, and the journalistic standards of editorial control uh, and the pursuit of truth uh, and objectivity, there's still a lot of very diligent professional people who are engaged, we've heard from some of it, uh, in, in a bid uh, of the pursuit to have really high professional standards. And um, in spite of all the things we know that's happened uh, in the media, you know, the sort of uh, uh, obsession with lifestyle and celebrity press, less investigative journalism and research and funding towards that, both in terms of print, uh, but documentary filmmaking and, and, and others. It's still the case that, um, uh, that there are a lot of people who are, are uh, uh, pursuing things in a, in a diligent way. However, um, I, I do think that we know that there's like two different things that have gone on. We've heard some examples, but the lies have been part of the media historically. I mean, we know the notion that the first casualty of war is the truth and the role that the media perhaps have played in that. We know that, uh, you know, a very well-known story of Hill and Knowlton, the PR company, that uh, told the story about Iraqi babies being pulled out of uh, incubators that led to kind of uh, the whole thing about, you know, uh, stoking up the idea of the Iraq war uh, and then it becoming, uh, and that, you know, things about press releases going out and then, then getting wide circulation and how much they're fact-checked or not, or then subsequently all weapons of mass destruction. And that critical engagement and the sense of uh, perhaps uh, a wholesale going along with certain ideas that have left some people feeling concerned. But the kind of relationship between the critical thinking of the media in the past, I think, or being like holding it to account around a range of issues, whether it's uh, uh, Hillsborough uh, uh, or something like the miners' strike in Orgreave where the footage was turned around the other way to make it look like miners were attacking the police first rather than the other way around. They were still seen, but not in the context of people being completely cynical and not trusting the media. Um, and I think why that's changed so much and what's interesting now is um, <coughs> that basically, I think a lot of people, there's, there's a role that the media's played within this that hasn't done it any favours, and I think that a lot of people, perhaps in the public, believe that 
in a way, the media becomes simply, particularly around issues around science or lifestyle and health and food, they become a, basically just a gateway for PR, uh, for government or big business. So there's a perception that that's what's happening. I think something different is actually happening quite often. Um, but, you know, no, um, basically, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of fact-checking of sources and leads, but there's also a, an issue that certain types of press releases or companies are considered in a certain way, as though somehow when they put research out, that uh, 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 they're not to be trusted, but when an NGO or a charity or a kids' charity puts it out, that somehow that's more authentic or rigorous or to be trusted. And I think that um, one of the issues is that, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this has got quite a lot of purchase of also with what we see as being like the journalism uh, of attachment with journalists and publications uh, a media establishment just um, pursuing an idea in quite a way that they attach themselves to. Um, I mean, we, we all saw that, I mean, many people, I'm sort of sure, saw uh, uh, the uh, video that went viral of Ishmael um, Blagrove, who was the coordinator of Justice for Grenfell, when he was berating the Sky News reporter, accusing him of all being part of this. Uh, and, you know, it's quite worrying, the idea that one way you accuse a reporter of being part of a this, and we're not even sure what the this is. But I think it chimed uh, with a lot of people around this sense of promoting a certain idea. And I think we really have to unpick it, because it's quite a dangerous idea. That the heart, it's like, on the one hand, it's like about our own agency, about what, who we are as the public and, and an inquisitive public, but are going to rely on some experts and specialists to, to, to tell us some information and to be fact-checked. But in the 24-hour news cycle, if these things happen really quickly or not, uh, and how, how rigorously across the board things are checked, in order that we can make up our decisions about what we then do with the information and the evidence. Because in the end, facts uh, and evidence don't actually say anything. Right? What they do is they present you with some information. Then you need politics and ideas and a discussion about what you're going to do about them. But also, one does need to discern what you know, stats really represent, this thing about the assumptions uh, uh, behind the stats. Now, in my uh, role as the chairman of the Nighttime Industry Association, uh, to my chagrin, uh, I've been like, quite obsessed about stats. I'm not particularly good at stats. I'm really bad at maths, right? But, you, but what happens is that you have these conversations about crime being... Uh, uh, crime in Britain is going down, but you've got all these hotspots, for instance, around the nighttime economy. And you've got all these instances, crime's increasing. And then what happens, it happens to some very particular things. You have a narrative that crime is increasing around here that then has an impact on an industry in Britain, the fifth biggest industry, suffocating bars and clubs, 50% uh, of which has now been closed down in the last 10 years due to overzealous regulation because of things like the discussion that crime stats are increasing. In actual fact, when you start looking at those things, you, it becomes a whole range of different things, like people's mobile phones being lost and reported on insurance, and then that's tagged as a stat that the borough commander then talks about, and they have to reduce crime. And that becomes part of a narrative of crime in Britain and a nighttime economy, suffocating a really creative uh, employer. Now, you know, also within my experience of the Nighttime Industry Association, I've been shocked somewhat by how little fact-checking when I put press releases out are done. And it is kind of a bit disconcerting because you think, well, actually, I, I, you know, very rarely am I called back or emailed back to, um, to fact check. You know, the people who do it the most are vice. It's not a surprise to me, right? Um, and I'm talking about everyone now, broadsheets, you know, mainstream news, radio. And I think that's a concern because I think people are under pressure with time. 
Uh, and I think that, you know, you could say that's, maybe they just trust me, I don't know. I think they, the thing about uh, checking, fact-checking and, and looking at, and I think that there is this dichotomy uh, about, that I think people within the media have now uh, appropriated, that there's some <laughs> boo-bad types of companies, and then there's some good yay ones. And uh, whether it's about whether we should be intervening in a place in a country, or uh, a range of very, very emotive, complex issues, whether it's about FGM uh, or uh, Me Too, a range of things. There's a whole, um, there seems to me to be a situation where the media hasn't done itself any favours by backing things and this convergence of comments uh, and uh, news. And then what happens is, of course, you get this mad moment where we're being told, for instance, that with alcohol, as an example, that there's 30 units are safe, and now it's 22 units, but now it's 14. Actually, it's not safe, it's really dangerous, but it's as safe as driving a car. And then what that does is it imbues this complete disregard in the public. They're like, well, what is it that we're meant to think, and who are you people, and what are you talking about? And it sort of like, it does a disservice to the idea of science, because science is actually about finding out research and getting some things that then we can uh, use to, to, to um, get answers about then what we want to actually do about something. So, I think one of the antidotes to this is to insist really about um, uh, 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 that we shouldn't be uh, seeing uh, journalists like uh, having journalism of attachment, or at least we should be very clear about what that is when it's done. We're not opinion-led. <coughs> Uh, uh, publications, but also uh, NGOs and others that present themselves as news organisations or online and blogs and everything as though somehow they are uh, objectively talking about news when what they're actually doing is actually really putting a position. It's fine, I'm all up for that, but that's called a political opinion and a discussion. You want to get someone to do that uh, within the demos. And I think that um, you know we all have a challenge to, uh, to hold uh, ourselves responsible and, and media generally, uh, institutions um, on that. Just final point. <laughs> uh, I think the final point I'd like to make is really like the first time like, um, George Orwell in Politics in the English Language, when he talks about words and the use of them and the importance of using them uh, uh, correctly and efficiently and, what they, and meaning, because meaning is important and what you say is very important and us having like an objective view and being able to discern then the results of that and we need to be able to sort of uh, uh, hold a standard up to that and I think within the media itself uh, I would argue that's what we need to see happen Okay, gosh thank you it, It's times like this I'm quite glad I don't work for the media um, they're getting a bit of a hard time um, I wonder if I could just ask Faye and Kerry to come back on a couple of the points that these guys have raised just very briefly, do you recognise some of their criticisms uh, do you think they're the main issue? What's the solution? And then, very briefly, I'll go out to the audience and you guys can be quiet for a minute. Thank you, Bob. Yes. Um, I, I picked up the, the story that comes up a lot as um, criticism of, of media coverage is alcohol because a lot of people drink and a lot of people are unsure about what is a safe limit and what's not, so I'll pick up on, on that specific point. Um, I think um, we, we report... So, to give you some background... We look at our readers, um, Times readers, are, I think, are twice, uh, drink twice as much wine as the average in, uh, in society, and twice as much whiskey, so they're very interested in wine and whiskey, um, and we know that because we've done surveys, and I kind of keep that in my head when I'm thinking about um, whether we're writing about some a new type of wine, or um, the, the rise of the English uh, vineyard, for example, we do cover those a lot. So when it comes to your health and, and alcohol, there's loads and loads of interest in this area. 
Now, I actually think um, there is, on the one hand, absolute um, unity among experts on the idea that alcohol broadly is not very good for you. Um, the amount of alcohol, whether a small amount, is okay, acceptable, even good for you in some ways, is still up for grabs. And I think one of the difficulties is the confusion in the media actually reflects a level of confusion amongst experts. And in some ways, we've kind of, again, I understand this sort of duty, we've got a duty to report some of those studies that are contradictory. If we only ever gave you one single line, then I think you'd be rightly accusing us of only giving you one line and not, not um, uh, giving you the kind of full nuance of it. When um, uh, Dame Sally Davies, the Chief Medical Officer, said um, during, I think it was an interview or, or an evidence, that every time you reach for a glass of wine, you should think about cancer, and she, she said that, we reported it. People were really angry about that, but the kind of general push, I think, is towards the idea of think about it. Think more carefully. I like the expression of um, media and not telling you what to think, but what to think about. And I think there is virtue in the fact that alcohol is so regularly in the news, even if it's confusing, because it makes people reflect. Kerry. A couple of things. I mean, I think um, the media are not good at representing and calibrating risk mm. and that's a, you know, that's, a, that's a common problem across the media I think it is reflective of a common problem across society as well that people, individuals are not that great at understanding and calibrating risk either so, there's, so I think the media can do better but I think it's, it, it comes from something rather wider and I think the point about the, the sort of Monsanto point I think one thing I absolutely would recognise is that um, the media is prey to mythologies and much more inclined to entrench them than it is to undermine them. So there are, there is groupthink, you know. I think, and you can see that through. And that, again, that's not just a media problem. There is a, there is a, you know, if you go back through the sort of great public trust crises of the last several years, um, in all of so if you think of MPs' expenses. Banking, phone hacking, th these are pretty well regulated areas. And what you saw was that in every case, culture overcame regulation. And culture, these were small groups of people that tended to, to, to deem the same sort of things acceptable. And I think the relevance of that is that there are companies, there are institutions that are too often seen as the good guys by, by the media, and others, Monsanto, and actually. Oxford University, very often, that are seen as uh, on the other side of an argument. And it's, there is really very little incentive for most journalists to, to revisit these mythologies because the, the fun and the money and the you know, promotions tend to come from, from playing with them rather than against them. Okay, can I see who wants to speak? And uh, Graham, do you want to just say one a few things? But to Make sure you put speak into the mic. I don't think, I just wanted to respond to Faye. I don't think anyone objects to the Times printing medical stories about wine consumption that are contradictory of one another. What, what, as a Times reader and definite archetype wine drinker would like, it's, a numeric, it's what I was trying to say and failed to get across, numeric contextualisation of that risk. What would happen to Graham and Barnett based on this story were he to change his, his wine consumption by one unit up or down to my lifetime risk of the cancers which are currently most likely to kill me. And I was trying to get across, it's very easy to do that calculation. Kerry, it's exactly what you're saying. This contextualisation of news stories in terms of background risk, I think makes, don't not report it, but contextualise it more. That's all. Okay, gentleman with the mic. And is there another mic or is there just one? Okay. Yeah, let's bring this over to the red hair. 
Yes, sir. So, um, I voted for the first time um, in the general election and then uh, the EU, uh, EU referendum. And as a first time voter, and just like uh, people in my cohort as well, um, I, I got most of my news and information and let's assume facts and opinions um, via social media, so Facebook, for example. Um, and what I think distinguishes, um, and it's quite like a, it's just a very obvious difference in terms of who votes for what and opinions between the older generation and the younger generation is that when you guys, one of you, you're very young, um, when the older generation uh, that, who didn't previously have social media, they could pick and choose, let's say, for example, they're going to read the Times, they, they've got the subscription, that's all they're going to see. Um, the difference with us is um, uh, I, find, I find that I, I have no choice. I have Facebook, and just because I like certain things, I am now the target. I don't like the Times would choose me, but I choose the Times. So my question is, so, like, the idea of neutrality is quite difficult, but um, what role do you think social media in specific um, has to play in, uh, in this conversation, so within this truth and fair representation? And, you know. Yeah, you know, there's a lady there. Um, this question that kind of plays to the idea of both uh, mythology people buy into uh, and impartiality and duty and potentially what we're going to about. I'm reading Hillary Clinton's book at the moment. There's a stat in there that 70% coverage of her campaign is about her emails, which actually there was no crime there, and only 10% was focused on policy. And the New York Times, for example, <coughs> ran front page coverage of her emails, I think, every single day for an entire year. And I think that definitely influenced what the conversation was about. And I wondered if you think that the duty of media sites to appear, of all, all media to appear balanced and impartial, has maybe led to uh, the overrepresentation of some ideas and actually something that is intrinsically unbalanced because you are trying to put on the same level two ideas or two candidates or two points of view that actually have very different evidence when we're doing it in the name of fairness when actually it isn't. That's a good question. There's a lady who's got the mic. Um, who should have the mic now? And yeah, there's a man there. Yeah, go. We have two questions. Um, the first one is um, we are, we're biological creatures and we come from different cultural backgrounds and, you know, experience different things. And how is it possible to be totally objective Can't. and how could media ever do that since you know media has been like accused of being side compliant but isn't that just natural because we are all side compliant and secondly is historically there have been a huge tight relationship between media and uh, PR firms and uh, for example the recent collapse of Bell Pottinger is a case in point and uh, you know, they have been like accused of manipulating the media on behalf of Zuma and Kupta um, family. And then now revelations have shown that they have been paid by the US Defense Force and CIA for $540 million to manipulate Afghanistan and uh, Iraqi stories. So how do you ever shake off that sort of mistrust between the public and media? And in fact, still a lot of people are deceived by what we hear in the media. 
I often encounter such things like, oh, you know, I don't trust media. They're, you know, they're all full of lies. Yet when they read particular stories, they would say, well, yeah, the media said so, right? So this kind of things, you know, even though some people say we don't trust media, yet when it comes to particular stories, they choose what they believe. But is it ever possible to be objective? Because we, I think, come to the same point. We are all biased creatures. <coughs> Okay, there's, there's quite a lot of people who want to speak, so I'm going to take a couple more, come back to the panel and go back out. We've got a reasonable amount of time, so I'm going to take this gentleman there and the guy in the yellow, then a couple of things from the panel, then out. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that why is trust important for the media? Because uh, is for a very long time the media's been distrusted by people. No one's taken that as a particular issue, partly because people were buying a lot of newspapers and magazines, and partly because... Uh, there was there were part of an important national conversation. So the the trust of the media, part of the idea I always understood it was they were they had a go at the establishment. They were the awkward squad. They were open to being uh, mistrusted. And so it seems to me that even this discussion is um, a bit wary and defensive about what the media should do. It should be. Uh, distrustful because it should be, uh, you know, slaughtering sacred, sacred cows wherever possible. But there is a new thing I think, which is uh, the sort of there's a political direction about the hostility to the mainstream media, and I, I think it comes to me the the sort of big cultural division there is. So, for example, in today's Times, we've got a headline: "Go uh, Go Sour Barrel Today" with Weinstein Joe, and it's the Sunday Times. But nonetheless, the old thing is about how there's been a big Twitter storm about God making this joke about Weinstein. And uh, it seems to me that you're going to upset half of the culture war people, partly by just giving them one side of presentation of it, and then partly by the position it is. So it's not really possible to dodge the question, the big cultural divide there is, between the people who think making a joke about Weinstein is fine, and the people that don't. So you've got to engage with that rather than just play one side of it or just trying to use traditional news values. I think it's that point of attack on trust in the media, that political side, that you're part of the establishment, that you've ignored one side of the Brexit debate, or you've ignored uh, one side of the political correctness debate. I think that's the thing that's really getting us really at the moment, and it, and it should be. Okay. Mr. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm studying A-levels at the moment and through doing politics um, and being relating to my college and also studying a course of critical thinking, which is kind of about trying to think outside what everyone thinks is true. Um, I've almost come to the conclusion where I just don't have any opinions anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's almost as if the more I've found out, the less I've believed. Um, so, the story of life. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and in order to try and I hone this down and make a documentary, but I want to ask you: um, Is it? Do you think it's really possible? And this is quite similar to the last question that was asked by Lady. Um, do you think it's really possible to have any kind of structured, sophisticated, um, and well thought out opinion without being, in some way, ignorant or close-minded? Okay, panel, you can't answer everything. We'll go back out, and you'll have another chance. So, quick comments. What is the most important thing you want to come back on? Well, I think the thing is that. <laughs> I think the important thing is questions, right? When there's a, uh, a stat or a, a number of stats that come out that say something about something, 
we journalists have a responsibility to ask just very basic questions. They don't have to be brilliant statisticians. If one does this, does this then mean that? Uh, and put some uh, pressure on all the different organisations that release these stats and questioning uh, that discussion. So on the point about objectivity, it's the same to this question about, you know, in the discussion about Brexit, who says what and how. These are very complex, tricky issues, some of them, some of them in science, some of them just about politics. What do we do? I think the point is to ask as many questions, difficult, tricky ones, and if uh, the media had that spirit where they consistently uh, were able to do that across the board, in spite of all the new economic challenges and the disruption and all of that, that that was the standard. Uh, because in reality, obviously, everyone has all sorts of different opinions. And the aggregation of information and data gets done in a certain way. But there are some standards that you can say uh, are, can be, should be pursued consistently. And that is tough questioning consistently. And I think if we lose that, then that's very problematic. Graham? Um, I wanted to respond to uh, one of the young men at the with spectacles about social media. Uh, believe it or not, old people use social media as well. So <laughs> it's not just racist like for middle-aged people. But I think you make a good point. You asked us what do we, you know, what do, we do about it. So I have only a partial solution. is about being aware. Um, I wanted to commend and expand on something Faye said about the editing process. As a user, a reader of the media, I'm like anyone else, like, of course they say that's in The Guardian's the editorial line, or, you know, whatever, dismiss something because of the editorial line as the specter's being pushed at me. As a hack, I know the times when I've been edited, when I've been lucky enough to be edited, is the times that I've produced the best copy. Because another person has said to you, what do you mean by that? Do you realise this could be misconstrued? Where's your evidence to support this assertion? So just be aware when you're reading social media, that process hasn't happened. And it's one reason why I think, a priori, one would be more likely to trust something that came from an editorial-based process. But that's not to say there's anything wrong with social media. Um, can we be unbiased? Absolutely not. Believe it or not, that's what I was trying to say. Evidence is objective. It can be weighed objectively. But your belief in a theory conditional on that evidence is always a function of what you believe to start. So there is... No attempt to derive an epistemology of evidence-driven hypothesis testing, which has been anything other than a failure. Thanks. I think uh, to address both the social media and the objectivity question, um, I think where I come out from my latest experience is that your attention is literally the most valuable thing that you own. And in fact, the trade that you're making with the media is that you will give them their attention, your attention so that they can give you something valuable and they are selling that attention to somebody else. And so they are making money by having something that hooks you in to capture your attention. And I think that this is, brings in an important element. You kind of mentioned it about the NGOs. The NGOs know this. And so uh, if you want to read a fascinating court document um, from the U.S., go look up Greenpeace v. Resolute, which Resolute is a timber company that is suing Greenpeace over uh, using RICO statutes, saying you guys are, are actually colluding together to block our business. And they get Greenpeace on the record. And Greenpeace says, yes, we, we admit the things that we have said, the things that we have put out in press releases, the quotes that are in the news, they're not true. We know that. But our job is to draw attention, so we're allowed to use hyperbole. Now, if you juxtapose that against the people that they are having an equivalency with, so the news is saying, hey, this is what Greenpeace says and this is what somebody else says, if an actual company comes out and says something using hyperbole that isn't true, 
They won't just be sued by the other side that they're in a fight with. They'll be sued by every single person that can find a way to extract money out of that situation. So the balance there is really about one side has the ability and really only the drive to get attention. And it's all about monetizing your attention into, into selling it to advertisers or to getting you to pay attention to their cause. Uh, I'll pick up on the point about whether, whether trust matters. Um, I think in the end, the, the reason some of this matters a lot, and you know, I said in, earlier that I think in the end, trustworthiness that we have to focus on rather than trust. Um, w- one of the questions that we're all familiar with is, is how possible it is to have democratic debates in a society where we don't agree on a sort of common baseline of, of facts. And what are we debating if we can't even agree what the the foundations of that debate are. In the end, the backdrop for all of this, I think, is an increasingly polarised society where judgments are being made on different lines than, than used to be the case. So I used to have in mind a sort of an idea that the public would invest trust in a newspaper or a media outlet, depending on a spectrum that might run from how captured that organisation is by <coughs> political or commercial interests at one end, we don't like that, or how independent or accountable it looked at, um, at the other end. Somewhere along there the public would say, you know, we think this outfit is independent enough and robust enough and has the right stance uh, towards authority and we quite like it. That seems to me to be dim- diminishing now. There's a different scale that's come into play which is, about, which is just about values. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why if anybody under 35, the primary source of news in this country is Facebook. And the way that um, young people are getting their news is much more dictated, is much more filtered through questions of values than it is through sort of uh, that, that, what to me looks like a more rational judgment. And, and that, I think, is problematic in the end because um, in, in those circumstances, the media and social media will become motors that drive further polarisation, not dialogue and, and integration. When I was um, preparing, it's brilliant questions, by the way, and I actually think they all um, coalesce around exactly the same idea, which is really interesting in itself. When I was preparing for this um, debate, and I don't normally do this, I'm a, I'm a news editor, so that's my day job, I don't normally come in and take part in debates. Um, and it's interesting because so many of these uh, sort of conundrums are what we deal with literally minute in, minute out in the newsroom. It's sort of interesting to have them aired out here. When I was preparing, I kind of was go- getting to this point where I was like, there is no truth, you know, there's no truth. Everything's subjective, uh, you know, as this lady said, you know, everything we do is subjective, but don't let us off the hook like that. Like, we, we can't go down that road. If you look at the way that Trump has, has weaponized the idea of the fake news media, anything that he disagrees with being an untruth, and anything that he propagates, like, I have the biggest crowd, when categorically he did not, don't let there be no truth, because otherwise... The kind of the end is, is what Kerry said, a total polarisation where you cannot agree on anything with the person sitting next to you, even though you might have come from the same town or the same school or you know, um, worship in the same mosque or the same church or the same synagogue. We have to, to strive to get to certain truths and then accept that other things, there can be no truth. And then we, in between that is the, the communication of those certain truths. And that's the bit where I think 
it's, it's almost impossible to give an objective communication of the truth because your projection of it or your angle on it is going to, to change. But the base facts, we have to strive for those. And one of the biggest roles that the media plays is to, is to in some ways, give you the, the, some of the celebrity and the recipes and things so you buy our paper. So we put loads of money into the investigation side, which is so expensive. And I mean, I, I was part of a big investigation on tax avoidance, which showed that Jimmy Carr was a big tax avoider and he was used as a kind of way of saying, hang on, this entire legal industry shouldn't be legal. The law has changed. But we took five months before we published a single story. That's two journalists, five months, no story. Like, that's my salary. Who's going to pay for that salary? And some of that means that if, if our readers like celebrity stories, we need to keep them buying the paper to fund some of that side of things. So that, again, gives you that sense of why we're giving you a mix of things, of entertainment, of light stories, of, of heavy stories. But the getting at the truth and the lifting lid on the truth, we have to keep pushing for that. And I'd urge you not to give up on that element of things. Okay, who'd like to speak? Okay, microphone people. Um, there is a... Yeah, there, this man's been looking at me. Yes, with a beard. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. You've both got beards. We are um, in the bar. There, 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 there. I will get you all in. Just keep um, your hands up, keep looking at me, and uh, it'll happen. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the media do a uh, pretty good job, and I, uh, I know that because I work in PR, and I spend most of my time trying to subvert the news agenda to my own uh, needs, and it's bloody hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I understand the critical scrutiny you have to try and get through, and I also know that I work a, uh, you know, around the UK, but also globally, and actually we should, you know, generally we can cherish what is actually a really strong media culture, which does a decent job. The hardest challenges it has is um, facing the decline of uh, and cuts of newspapers. And I think that every death of a newspaper, every uh, attempt to kind of limit the freedom and the kind of hostility of the British press to everything and its willingness to uh, scrutinise and be critical um, should be resisted. Whether that's Leveson or whether it's um, you know, sort of anything else along those lines. And I also get a little bit nervous when, you know, whenever I just hear people, you know, really, when they're doing that sort of generational thing, which is that, you know, my generation doesn't really, isn't going to go to newspapers or the news. Well, the thing is, buying a newspaper is really, really but you know, it used to be considered an important thing to do because you were getting a viewpoint that wasn't your own, wasn't created. So I'm more than happy to just call that what it is, which is ignorance. It's not a thing <laughs> for the kind of next generation to valorize or to kind of celebrate. Actually, you should have a willingness to try and face media that is going to tell you uncomfortable truths. Not always going to be stuff that I politically like. It's not going to be stuff that I <coughs> agree with. Um, and it's not going to be used towards my own agenda in the same way that it's not going to be PR for the Labour Party or necessarily the Conservative Party. It's going to tell you uncomfortable truths. And I think that's what we should always kind of look for what our media to do, is to try and hold things to account and, and actually do talk about the fact that it, it does do a decent job of reporting what's going on in the world. You may not like what's going on in the world, but then you can try and change that. The change in the media won't be very much better. There's a gentleman here. Um, I'd like to go back to something Graham Archer said right at the beginning, which was about cryos. So if somebody makes a claim, um, for example, that synthetic phonics is the best way of teaching reading in schools, what other beliefs did they have about the efficacy of different teaching methods? And did they look into the evidence for those, or did they only look for the evidence of the, the one thing they were interested in? And I think we could do this a bit more when it comes not just to sources of information, but also audiences. Um, I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we've had debates with people, perhaps online, where they say things that strike you as wrong-headed, and you want to know why they think that. They might say, for example, we know that IQ is inherited from parents to children, so what's the point of sending children to particular schools? 
And if you disagree with them, they say, oh, well, you've just been reading the mainstream media, but I've got a better source. And they find some really obscure website, which, you know, someone's got to be in their vomit about inheritance and IQ and race. Um, so it's not just the sources of media that should be thinking about their prior beliefs. I think we should be asking each other, what were your prior beliefs when you made that claim? Were you predisposed to think that? Is there any other possible view you would entertain? And probably in the end, we're not arguing about facts at all. No, I agree. We're not arguing about whether IQ really is inherited or what the genes are. It probably is about morality. Um, and you've got a moral view that this is how inheritance comes about. So both of us trying to up, you know, trip each other up by finding better facts from different sources is probably a waste of time. Okay. Uh, there's a person with the mic. Um, yeah, no, just, no, no, um, no, 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 but you are next. I promise. A, sorry, yeah. you're, you're next, so it's all good. Um, so I think we all have a consensus on the principles of journalism and what should be done. But in the spirit of tough questioning, um, I want to go back partly to... So I've got a three-part point, but... Um, something Faye said at the start, um, maybe it's natural to automatically emphasize one part of the story, however you write it. Um, but in running down operating conditions, you're running down not just the thoroughness of how journalists operate, but also the diversity of voices and perspectives who can access those careers, and that affects the kind of emphasis that are chosen. So that's just basically saying diversity is really important and we really need to do more. But um, and two questions, really. Um, is the media too interreliant with the establishment, politicians and journalists necessarily rely on each other? And what Vance said, um, how is monetizing attention affecting what is reported on and therefore the truth of the news? Okay, yes, you? Yeah. Um, so yes. just going back to the, um, the thing about kind of reporting scientific studies in this case, um, just take an example of alcohol. I'm, I'm a scientist, not, not, um, I don't work on that, but the more science that I study, um, I'm a PhD student now. Um, so I've done, and the further um, up in science I get, the more I kind of, I'm uncomfortable with the way that science is reported on because it's kind of reported on, you have one study and it says there's this evidence um, on, on alcohol. Uh, but in reality, in science, one study is kind of one more piece of evidence for the evidence pile, and science is this iterative process. It's not a matter of, like, this is, this is what we all believe now. It's kind of a springboard for more debate within the community. But when, when you report each, each study separately, it's kind of, no wonder it's confusing for people who might not be and uh, know that the process is kind of like this and how, how the process of science works just because they haven't experienced that. Um, so I can see why um, journalism based on scientific topics can be quite kind of misleading and I was wondering if there's kind of, if, if there's anything kind of, if there's any kind of sense that there's something being done about this to kind of respond, uh, report science in a more responsible way and less misleading way, basically. Okay, there's a gentleman at the back with a mic, and let's pass it to this woman in green. Keep your hands up just while I... Okay, everybody. Hello. Please, 
Uh, my name is Roy. Uh, just to support, uh, I don't know your name, sorry, the American gentleman's point about the media being monetized. And it's not that I'm here to attack the media, because I can come up with several points where they, oh, they got this wrong or they got that wrong. Um, and also, I'd like to applaud you for um, putting time and effort in. I, to be honest, I didn't think uh, editors or researchers put that much time in before they put the news out. Um, now, <laughs> I think that we have to pay attention to the natural evolution of society, um, globalization because of this thing, and um, we have to, well, the older generation have to help assist this evolution, because the reporters aren't the first on the scene, Snapchat is, people get the news from Twitter, uh, and then the news that we saw this on Twitter. I'm going to come away from my point a little bit and talk about... We have to be quite quick, because about half the room... Alcohol, I'll be very quickly. So let's just, um, I'm going to speak very quickly on alcohol. If there are any scientists in the room, feel free to correct me. So when you take a sip of alcohol, it goes into your stomach, your liver goes, what's this? Turns it into aldehyde, which is a poison. And then your liver has to then break it down to your kidneys, and then that turns it into a vinegar. Then you get rid of it. Ultimately, you're damaging yourself. Anytime this is mentioned in British news or media, it's like, well, you know, we know it's bad, but, you know, drink it anyway. Like, you don't, the truth is avoided all the time, and the credibility needs to be restored. I think the way the credibility needs to be restored is to help usher in um, this new evolution. My last point, um, I have a really big problem with the sense uh, the news and the media sensationalizing violence. I have to use the London Underground all the time, and sometimes I take a peek at what uh, the person next to me is reading. 20 people died here, 50 people died there, 7 people died here. It's always violence and sensationalizing violence. Once, they, once they've got your attention, they need to keep it. Um, lastly, I also <laughs> want to blame the media for um, seeing the Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah, I agree with you there, and I'm going to move on. <laughs> okay, a lot of people want to speak, so be quick, and we'll get you all in. Take, put it to the man with the cap and the woman in green. Hi, I'll just be very quick. Um, so, just as you'd say, uh, you choose your friends, don't let your friends choose you. Choose your news, don't let your news choose you. Uh, I wish that people had better Googling skills, not just that they don't Google, but Google does a lot of things that most people don't realise that they can do. You can enter Google in search terms. So you can search for the opposite of what you normally search for. You can search for a story which disagrees with you by a site that you normally disagree with. There's all kinds of things you can do to educate yourself. I grew up in apartheid South Africa, a massively, massively sensitive society. I live in a world now an embarrassment of riches where you can actually find out. You can actually almost always go to the original source of the story. When someone tells you, hey, yeah, but I got it on Facebook. I have no sympathy. Yes. That's already been made that the media is not one homogenous mass. And, and I'd like to particularly point out that the BBC has a particularly separate agenda. So, where I read a newspaper, I have an understanding before I read the newspaper what the auditorial bias is. And I'm happy to see an opinion in the uh, editorial. But I'm not so happy about the opinions I get on the BBC. I'd rather see just fact reporting from them. Nice and short, you see. <laughs> Pass it to the lady behind and the person who's got the mic speak. I uh, just had a very, very quick question about unidentified sources. 
Um, you recently had a lot of uh, chats in various papers about the whole Boris Johnson, Theresa May, you know, who's plotting against who, all this kind of business. And you see a lot of quoting from unidentified sources. Um, I imagine that's because that's where a lot, a lot of journalists get their source material from. But it doesn't really help stories unless we know who the, you know, the actual source is. And I just wondered if you thought there should be some kind of vetting or some kind of generally accepted standard of who can be quoted, because the seriousness with which you take the story is inevitably dependent upon whether it's you know someone in the know or whether it's you know the person who I don't know picks up Boris Johnson's envelopes or whatever. You know what I mean? It, it depends on, on who's actually taking the story. Okay. Lady here, and um, bring the mic down to this man here. I just kind of want to pick up on this paradox we have between no one trusts the media, but the media is responsible for shaping public opinion and isn't representative of public opinion. That just doesn't seem to work. But following on from a couple of debates around GM crops and regulation, the role that the media then has in being representative of public opinion, despite no one trusting it, and how that then make actual change, whether that be Brexiteers who all read one newspaper and remains read something else. And then the political change that happens that ignores science or ignores facts and evidence that has been produced because people want to follow public opinion from media. Thank you. Um, I just want to pick up on the person's point about monetizing the media. Uh, so I started reading The Guardian back when it wasn't completely broke. I now really want them to put a paywall. Because I feel like if they did, I would trust that they were writing more. <coughs> and it's serious and puzzle. I feel like the uh, the reason that people don't trust the media as much these days, uh, more than the mainstream media, is threefold. One is the culture of fake news uh, that has newly found its way into the mainstream. The second point is the media's incessant belief that it is acting objectively when in fact it isn't. The third uh, point is that, uh, obviously, the, like the gentleman over here was saying with the monetary value, a lot of the time you do hear, you know, we're not selling news, we're selling stories. And I think that has an, there is definitely an inherent difference there, especially in media today. Sir. I'm Nico McDonald. I just wanted to point out there's a, a bigger issue around what's called data visualisation, the other way we visually present news, which we haven't discussed today, but visualizations can lie as well, and we need to think about how we present those. You know, it's not uh, certainly an issue uh, in print and to an extent on television. Um, this is, one of the problems seems to me, and this might be a question for Kerry, the former Today programme editor, is whether the media has lost its connection with its audiences, readers, listeners, and viewers, and doesn't respect them in the way it used to, and partly perhaps that's why we've lost trust in it. Just to, for the Today programme, which I tried to go to the sixth anniversary of yesterday, but didn't get in, um, you used to have a letters section where you could write to the programme and your letter would be read out. Now, the day programme abandoned that, probably because it thought, well, you can tweet at the programme, uh, but it never ever responds to those tweets. So in a way, despite social media appearing to open up connections <coughs> to audiences, actually, along with comments that you get in The Times, in The Guardian, and so on, readers, writers, editors never respond to those comments. I know why, because they're too busy. But what does that say about how the media thinks about its audience? If anyone saw the play Inc, James Graham's play at the Almeida, the way that Larry Lamb and Rupert Murdoch only thought about them, thought about and respected their readers in the 60s when they launched The Sun was very different from the way we think about our readers today. And just a possible solution, I'm just picking up on Faye's point about curation. I wonder if there is a future, a financial future, as our friend here just points, 
about the, the media being a curator for expert points of view, because clearly news media, particularly on TV, can't cover all the issues well anymore. And maybe people like Graham should be being, I'm sure he'd like to be paid, to have his <laughs> work republished or framed within a media framework. And the BBC, the Times, and so on should move towards that way of being, creating a garden of a kind of curated, commented upon space, um, which you know could be a financial future. I'm going to take two more, and then we're three more. <coughs> And then final comments from the audience, from the panel in the order they spoke. So that's this gentleman there with the glasses, and then these two ladies here, helpfully sitting next to each other. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I appreciate that this meeting wasn't about alcohol, but it's simply. Oh, no. <laughs> it's Sunday <laughs> afternoon. We've had a big weekend. It's, it's <laughs> Just 
So, um, but the good, the good thing about it, I think, that you, by knowing that the media might not be true, you, um, you kind of have developed your uh, own sense of critical thinking. And then, like, make, you try to make sense of, of everything you hear about. In a way, you become more smart about facts and about truth and not truth. So I just wanted to say it's a good thing that not trusting the media. Nice optimistic note to end on. Okay, panel, I want you to um, give us your top line, basically, in the order of reverse speaking. So that begins, uh, we'll start with Alan, Bance, Graham, no, Faye, Graham, and Kerry. Top lines. Um, we absolutely can have the pursuit of truth. We should never forget that. Um, I think that is a good aspiration. Um, and. Uh, we should definitely expect that. I think the idea that we shouldn't expect expertise uh, amongst the media is wrong. Um, and if you look at things like, say, someone like uh, Dr. Andrew Wakefield with the MMR and autism discussion, the, uh, it's not acceptable either to be completely hypocritical. You can't, on the one hand, champion something and then berate uh, the, the actual individual for doing it when you participated in it. And so I think that's a problem. But then there's a responsibility for us as citizens as well and for, for us to be responsible about what we actually think about these ideas and be critical together. And that's the relationship between ourselves and the media where we can get the best uh, of all outcomes. Hurrah. Thanks. Um, I think I want to actually address your point, and I think I can actually make you feel a little bit better. And it's talking about this um, uh, um, evidence about how, why people believe what they believe and how much confidence they have in it. And it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is the confidence that people have in what they know versus how much time they've spent learning about it. And it turns out when you first read that one economics book or that one book about how bad agriculture is, it skyrockets your confidence, right? But as you start to get into a PhD program and you start learning more, you learn how much you don't know and it plummets down into what they call the trough of disillusionment, right? And that can go on. <laughs> For years and years. And that, therein lies the other question about how does the media monetize attention. And it is that once you hit a certain point with depth of information, people don't want to look at it. You don't want to have to know something more deeply because it's difficult. And, and so just focusing on the story and the characters and the heroes and the villains. And I think uh, to the point back there about alcohol um, that I, and, and kind of encompassed in what we're talking about, my company uh, is a major producer of a, of a chemical called glyphosate, and it has been used by farmers for over 40 years. It has been one of the most well-tested studies, and one group, led by a group of activists, found one time where they said it probably causes cancer. And in the French press last week, 380 articles were posted on that alone. And that is what people believe. And so I guess I would implore, because you can't tell the news to change. They're going to do what they're going to do. You can only change what you're going to do and what you're going to pay attention to and how much you're going to push back on when your news isn't telling you to talk about the things that you think are important, you've got to push back on them. Okay. So many interesting points. Um, I'll tackle the monetization because I think that's come up quite a few times. Um, so we are, uh, in the main, BBC's exception to this, um, outlets that require you to pay us so we can keep going with profit making. We shouldn't pretend we're not or pretend we're on some kind of higher level that um, dismisses the idea of profit. So that's why I kind of reference the idea of sometimes we do stories about entertainment. I don't think that's dumbing down. I think it's helping to fund um, uh, heavier more journalism and more gravitas. The balance to that monetization is reputation. So 
So, I mean, The Times is a, is a paper with a long, long history of hundreds of years. But up to your new, you know, unheard of, which is unheard, which is a brand new um, a media endeavour, they, they, their stock is their reputation. So we, I mean, I would sell more papers if I wrote, you know, uh, really sensationalised stories on the front page for like a week, and then our reputation would start to plunge and our profits would start to plunge. So it's quite a good balance. Um, I guess there's a, there's maybe a problem though with something like Facebook, which claims not to be a publisher, it claims to be purely a platform. Same with, with YouTube, only a platform. Um, in that there's no kind of responsibility. So no, you're not going to, because you read lots of things on Facebook that reinforce your idea about Brexit or about um, uh, Trump or about Clinton, you don't go, oh, I'm not going to look at Facebook anymore. You keep looking at it, it keeps feeding you, and nobody's really kind of saying, hang on, Facebook, have you got a responsibility to give a, a more rounded picture or to present the, the counter-argument? So I think that is a big difference between the traditional media, the MSN, and I think that's something that's helpful um, I also think this idea of the speed of news, we might start to see a bit of a reverse, weirdly, in some ways. So the Times has moved to edition-based publishing. We don't publish real-time news, on, even on our website. We publish at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 5 o'clock, because we want a bit of time to go, OK, something's happened, let's like <coughs> reflect on it a little bit, let's work out which of our unidentified sources we're going to quote, which one is just your standard MP who always is rent to quote and always criticises the Prime Minister, Anna Subri, criticise the Prime Minister every single day. She's never going to be an identified person saying, oh, I'm criticising the Prime Minister. That's not a coup or a plot. We're using our experts, our, uh, our political editor and our politics team to analyse when it's a real plot and when it's not. And then we at 5 o'clock say put that into the public domain. So we're actually reversing the gear a little bit. We, it's partly because we can't compete with Mail Online regarding the BBC at the speed that they go, but it's partly because I think there is a bit of a a reaction against that. So I guess the way things are going doesn't have to be the way things will always go. Graham. I feel um, it's a bit unfair actually, I was reflecting that we picked on the media, do you trust the media? When the, the wider problem is, it's politicians answer that, isn't it? Is the trust in, in every institution and beyond institutions is falling and that's a big question. Why is that? I stopped driving about a year ago. It wasn't a big decision. Like, you know, I'm going to stop driving for the environment, I'm going to stop driving. Just, I, it dislikes it more and more and more. And now when people ask, Keith Scott, well, why have you stopped driving? The honest answer is that we no longer trust other drivers sufficiently to, do, to find driving anything other than unnecessarily stressful. So it's not just the media we don't trust. With regard to... The, do you think I'm a freak now? But honestly, you know, driving, driving backwards and forwards to Stevenage and a third of the time it takes me on the train was so much more stressful than, than sitting on the train and reading a book because I, I trust the train driver more than I trust other people. Just remember with the media um, that we are Plato's cave prisoners. So whenever we're looking at a thing in the media, we're not looking at the platonic truth. We're just looking at the, the shadows flickering the wall, refracted through the prior beliefs of the people who chose to present the story in that particular way. Oh, and hire more statisticians. <laughs> So I'm going to carefully edit the things that I choose to reply to, which is a privilege for me. Um, I think we need to understand just how problematic the financial situation of um, the commercial media is. Um, so I, I know something that I didn't know a year ago, which is that if I were to get a story into three national tabloid newspapers tomorrow, um, word for word, or almost word for word, I can do that any day of the week and it will cost me about two and a half thousand pounds. And that's because some of the tabloids have outsourced their reporting to agencies that are 
that I can give copy to and in it goes. And that's a reflection of just how broken the business model is in some parts of, uh, of the industry. And that is a, that is a real difficulty. Um, there was a question, I can't remember where it came from, about whether we in the media were too inter-reliant on other media and with politicians and so on. I think, yes, definitely. Um, I also think it points to a, a, another problem, which I think maybe Faye would recognise as well, which is that we are comfortable dealing with institutions, but much less good at dealing with movements or dramatic change. So one of the reasons I think that the, the mainstream media, if I'm falling for that terminology, struggled with Corbyn, because it came from something outside the, the, the ways that we understood the Labour Party in particular is working. And so I think there was, a, there was a slowness there just to understand what was going on because, you know, we have to go and talk to more people than just picking up the phone to, uh, to MPs who you understood. And finally, on the um, vital point about the Today program letters, um, <laughs> slot on the morning, um, which um, actually I got rid of. <laughs> because it was the same eight nutters who wrote it. Unrepresentative as it could be. The interesting thing about social media is that that has a huge effect on programme running orders. The Today programme ought to be much better at dealing with it directly. But uh, you sit there with a, in a live news programme seeing stuff coming in in real time, and it fundamentally changes the way really? that you think about the running order and what you're covering. Okay, well, that was a very healthy discussion, even if the media's in a less healthy state. But please join me in thanking you and the panel for the conversation.